Hello and a very warm welcome to this professional practice podcast with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at the Department of Architecture at Kingston School of Art. Today we're chatting with Louise Mansfield, Director at Allies and Morrison, where she manages the master planning, the urban design and strategic planning projects at the offices. We're speaking from the offices in Southwark now. We'll be talking about a range of subjects, including participatory design, architecture that is a meaningful engagement with stakeholders and local communities, and we'll also be talking about broader policy initiatives and how the kind of planning system works. So, thank you very much indeed, Louise, for having me here. First question up, which we always kind of ask our guests, is to tell us about yourself, how you got to where you are, what you studied, where you studied, that kind of thing. Okay, great. Uh, Thanks very much. It's very nice to have you here. Thank you. Um, I took a little bit of a random route uh, to where I am now. I started off studying um, geography and development studies at Sussex University, and I was most interested in the international development studies side of things. And that's what I wanted to go into. Um, Where does that lead to? It leads to sort of working for NGOs on development projects in sort of sub-Saharan Africa or somewhere. It turns out it's very difficult to start working in that industry. Not only do you need to work for free, you sort of need to pay to work and there are sort of working holidays you can go on. You have to be Oxbridge. Yeah, basically you have to be Oxbridge with some, uh, some funding behind you. After a few months selling advertising space for a student magazine door to door, go and teach English in Japan. I re- actually, I really enjoyed the teaching and may have stayed in that. It was only the fact that in an industry and in a field like ours, things change. There's new information coming out in terms of language teaching. It's, it's language pretty language. similar. Yeah. Okay. The books that I found myself, if we went up to Tokyo to go to the English bookstores, the books I found myself looking at were urban studies books like Saskia Sassen and David Harvey and stuff like that. And so when I got back, I decided to do a master's at LSE in City, Space and Society. It was in their geography department again. So I did the City, Space and Society course, which was brilliant and really interesting. And I took as many electives out of the City's programme. So did you get to be taught by Saskia Sassen? Do you know what? In the end, she was teaching while I was there. And in the end, it was, I chose, I don't know, Edward Soger. He has a book, Post Metropolis. I chose his course over hers because I think they did a little taster um, lectures. Okay. And his was really, really engaging. So we're getting a handle on your post-structuralism. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay, well, we'll smooth over that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well since we've done the education thing, we, what about your work experience? Yeah. To reach the stage of uh, uh, Alison Morrison, yeah. urban practitioners is what it's called. So, it? in a way, strangely, I've sort of had like an old-fashioned one-job one career because I graduated from LSE and then joined Urban Practitioners in 2004, about a year after graduating. Oh, right. So I needed to stay a year because the university had paid for my course. So that's the first place I went and was with them for about five years originally and then left for a year, went freelance for a year. I worked still with Urban Practitioners and then a bit with CABE um, just independently and then sort of moved back. And at the point, shortly after I moved back, was the point at which Urban Practitioners merged right, with Allies right, Morrison right. Architects. So obviously, I presume you started making tea, and then now you're the director. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I did so start that. How did that happen then? What was the process? Or it's, well, it's interesting. So at the point at which I joined Urban Practitioners, um, it was a very small practice. It had been set up by Anthony Rifkin and Helen Hayes, who is now, incidentally, my MP, having left yeah. Allies Morrison um, a few years ago. And they had about sort of seven or eight people 
And so actually there's a very stable group of people, about five or six of us, who were there in 2004 and who were still here. So urban practitioners grew. We were sort of about 20 people at one point. There were some sort of difficult times in 2009. And so I was an associate at the point at which we moved to move in with Allies and Morrison, if you like, in 2011. And I've just worked on larger and more diverse projects since then. So if anybody is listening to this hasn't been to Alice and Morrison, it's just even if you stand on the street, it's quite a long walk before you get to the end of the models because it's, it's a hell of a display, isn't it? You've it got is. A, a range of work on and a range of continents. Yes, yeah, it's a it's a very nice facade. And also there's, there's sort of more hidden behind the yeah, building as yeah. well. In the introduction I just mentioned about you know, what we'd be talking about, about this kind of architectural engagement with communities and all, and all the rest of it. And there's a couple of terms I mean, there's millions of terms, but a couple of terms which regularly crop up that, in my experience, nobody really knows what they're talking about, especially stakeholders, but community co-design, maybe slightly differently. But do you want to just like give us a, your best shot at how you would explain what a stakeholder is? Yes, all, all three of those terms are, are sort of um, quite contentious. It's a bit like the sustainable development term in that it's you that they're each used so frequently with different meanings by different people yeah, yeah, that it's yeah. hard to get to the crux of a of a core meaning. So I, I would say stakeholders, there's an incredible range of stakeholders that we work with, that I work with during projects, but it's sort of landowners and developers of sites and areas we're looking at, service providers, so local authorities, but it could also be bus operators. Uh, the people running the local swimming pools, schools, occupiers of those areas, representatives of local groups, so residents associations, civic societies, transition groups, sort of sustainability groups, but also local residents, our stakeholders. Um, but it's, I, I suppose, internally, when we're considering it, stakeholders are people that represent an organisation as well as just themselves, and we usually have very detailed discussions with them early on because it's important to understand their needs and their priorities. So do you do these kind of famous bubble diagram stakeholder drawings? We do. We do do the bubble diagram uh, stakeholder drawings at the start of each project to just sort of identify who the stakeholders are and what actually the relationships between those stakeholders might be as well. Um, Because usually, whichever place you're working in, there's a complex network of relationships that you won't fully understand when you arrive and you can start to plot them. And as you go through the engagement, that lobby diagram gets more and more complex than the Yeah, so changes as and some stakeholders disappear from your yes, consideration. Yeah. And, and some others sort of yeah arrive right. um, all right, well, look, that's good. So then there's the community. Yeah, so community, I think, is probably almost the trickiest out of them. And I think the the major issue is when community becomes one thing and you just talk to the community as if it's one homogenous yeah, group of yeah. people because obviously everyone is incredibly different community members are as different as one person is to the next yeah. and their experience of the local place is different there are definitely overlaps between community and stakeholders you know sometimes we may differentiate between a stakeholder workshop if that is for people who are attending during the day on behalf of professional organizations and then a community workshop in that might be at the weekend or the evening where people are representing themselves and their local knowledge and interest yeah, in the yeah, area. Yeah. 
But actually, as I said, they are stakeholders as well. And are they like community leaders? Obviously, community leaders we do talk to, and they may may well attend the stakeholder events as representatives of of the local community. Um, And it's incredibly useful to speak to them because they have a huge amount of knowledge about the local area. They're dedicated to it and want to give up their time. But it's also important to talk to other people as well as the sort of dedicated and vocal community stakeholders because you get a far wider range. Not just the loudest voice. Exactly, exactly. And then core design. Yes. 60s coming back. Yeah, full circle. So, yeah, co-design, it feels like it's it's almost quite a fashionable term at the moment. It's incredibly important. And I feel feel like there is an element of semantics about it. So, regardless of whether you're doing co-design or not, it's it's critical that you speak to people before you start the design process so their ideas can inform what you do rather than you settling on an idea and then just asking people what they think of it and whether they agree with it. And I think co-design is the most, uh, I suppose, complex and advanced and you know perhaps the best version of that. Um, it's about the expertise of local people in terms of understanding the place and their needs for the area and how it currently operates, what the issues are through their lived everyday experience. And then the skills and expertise of design professionals coming in um, and looking at something with fresh eyes, but also having that skills and expertise as architects and urban designers. Yeah, but that trusting is quite important, isn't it? It is. The idea that you're not just doing it for the sake of doing it, and then you're going to throw it in the bin as soon as you go out the door. Exactly. it's true. So the scale of scale of projects that I do and that we do here in general um, are huge. You know, we look at entire boroughs for characterisation studies at the moment, and that's a particularly we're we're doing a few projects like that at the moment because there's such high housing demand from the GLA for local authorities. So looking at housing delivery being good growth, as has been identified, and um, character led and having input from local people from that earlier stage. And then master plans, neighbourhood master plans, um, right down to um, specific squares or spaces. So we work with landscape architects um, often. I mean, obviously you have some of these kind of commissions and projects of your own as an urban practitioner. Yes. And presumably you also have architects combining with that. So do you then have influence over the architectural argument? Yes, yeah. yeah. So that's a really good question actually because I would say most of our projects we're we're doing this sort of strategic master planning um, and spatial frameworks but we also do engagement for the architectural work that um, architect colleagues do. Stratford Waterfront is an example in the Olympic Park uh, with V&A Museum and Sadler's Wells and and London College of Fashion moving to um, uh, Stratford. And so this has been a a huge project for for the architects in the office over the last few years and we've undertaken quite a uh, long-running engagement exercise for that. Um, And actually the scale of the project does have an impact on the amount of engagement that you can do. Um, So for Stratford Waterfront, we uh, established a sort of a legacy youth group that were sort of students from local schools for age between 15 and 25 who have an interest in the built environment and sort of express this. So we had a series of workshops with them throughout and actually some of the most valuable input came from that group. You know, they know how they might want to use the spaces in the future and in fact it was the public space that changed a fair amount through the process. Through through the people that we spoke to, because there are lots of cultural organisations already in Stratford, and there was 
you know, understandably a bit of concern. We have our own cultural life going on here. Once these internationally acclaimed cultural organisations arrive, are they going to entirely overshadow us? So the relationship between the existing cultural organisations and, and the new organisations coming was a particularly sort of rich discussion, I think. And that has had an impact beyond the site area, if, right. if you like. Very good, very good. Okay, uh, we're speaking at the beginning of March, middle of March mm. uh, 2020, so that sets it in consideration. The Minister of State for Housing recently announced, and I quote, the government said national planning policy, but it's important that decisions and policies are made locally. We are clear that councils and their communities are best placed to take decisions on planning issues affecting their local area within the context of national planning policy. So we'll talk about national policy uh, more generally, but do you think that that statement, well, first of all, whether you think that's any different to what's been said before, but do you think that there's a potential for greater local accountability in what seems to be being uh, proposed in national planning frameworks? So I think at a headline level, to a sense that it's a it's a positive thing. I think having input locally, you know, having having a clear plan, a robust framework that everybody understands, mm-hmm. that has flexibility within it, isn't too prescriptive, but there's that robust framework sort of underpinning what happens is positive in that um, a, the local community has a clear idea of what might come in the future, and it sort of de-risks the design and development process for developers to a certain extent because they know what will be acceptable and what wouldn't be acceptable. But at the same time, the greater accountability would usually require greater resources to go with it. And I think, critically, that's not necessarily been the, been the case. Yeah, so we've talked a little bit, you know, we're, with your examples about bottom-up processes, about you, how you engage these stakeholders, communities, and get involved in core design. But... There is the top-down frameworks, the National Planning Policy Framework and all the rest of it, which ironically was one of those documents that was founded to get rid of all those planning policy guidance, thousands of documents, bring it into one and rationalise it, and now it's already starting to grow. Proliferate, But can you give us a... No, I just said it's a big document. Can you give us a brief synopsis about what it's about, what it's for, what its authority is, and, and, and all the rest of it? And then we'll talk those kind of yeah, sub-layers yeah. that we have to deal yeah. with. Well, you know, it is the the first port of call for planning decisions. So it has the, the highest level um, of consideration. And so all planning decisions should relate to it. And I think for that reason, they, they wanted to make it more succinct. But as you say, it's beginning to, to grow again. There are a number of local authorities who are still in the process of preparing their local plans. And obviously, if they don't have those in place, or if they found not to be delivering enough homes in recent years with the latest version of the MPPF, then um, decisions will all, even if there is a local development plan in place, all decisions will revert back to the MPPF. So it is an incredibly important document. Um, and it covers the whole country, so there is a tension in that it needs to be strategic, it can't be place-specific. Um, I think, hence, I think the, the, the um, focus on local accountability and local input. Yeah, yeah. But it also needs to, be, needs to be robust. So, you know, there was a fair amount of criticism, I think, when it was first introduced, the, the first version in, in 2012, um, because so much guidance had disappeared and it, it felt a little bit light 
in terms of what it can provide in, in guiding yeah. new development. As you say, it's it's grown slightly. You know, there are some good elements to it. The the latest version has a far greater focus on design and the role of good design, um, which has been received positively by the industry. But there are there are still areas where I think it is pretty blind. So if you were to like sum it up in a couple of sentences, <laughs> I mean, what's it for? I think it's to I think it's to ensure that there isn't a free for all in terms of development that. Um, it's not a case of anything getting built anywhere and the profit motive being the overriding factor. And obviously developers need to make a profit, otherwise nothing will get built. But it's to provide the checks and balances and the framework for that to happen within sort of the broader context and the sort of provide ideally for the greater good rather how, than just for the profit of it. Yeah, exactly. So, and how does it sit with like the Town Country Planning Act, which everybody first of all the time I mean is it is it separate from that is it developing from that is it responding to that yes yeah I mean it I mean the town and country planning app that's that is obviously going way back mm. and, and that was held in very high esteem yeah. um, and I think to a certain extent it doesn't build on that I think some of those principles of being for the greater good have been lost slightly as you mentioned the two 2012 uh, version of it, the first one out, had this statement that said that it's the entire document, it, I think it said something like, if you want to understand what the government's definition of sustainable development is, this document is it. Hmm. So it was a 65 page or something um, uh, definition. That clause seems to have gone in the 2019. But they have this um, famous clause, which seems to be causing equal confusion and legal cases and goodness knows what, saying that there will be towards a presumption in favour of sustainable development. Do you want to just explain where that clause kicks in? Yeah, I mean, that's, um, that's right up front at, at the moment, their description of sustainable development and that presumption in favour of it. Yeah. In the plan, it's identified as economically sustainable, socially sustainable and environmentally sustainable. In the previous iteration, actually, I think the emphasis has shifted slightly in, in the 2019 version. There was a bit of a focus on sustainable development, on the economic side of it, mm. if you like. And then there's the question of whether um, economic sustainability is sort of the broader economic resilience of a place over long term or the viability of a site. And so there was some criticism about that economic sustainability focus being directed towards viability and at its most reductive stage I suppose it could be considered that if a scheme is viable then it's sustainable and I think that did cause some controversy and is partly behind I think the Mayor of London introducing the viability SPD and um, employing a viability team um, because obviously many local authorities and the GLA didn't have that same viability expertise that developers do when discussing what's possible on a site in terms of affordable housing and the like. Is it the case that you know you present a plan to the local council, the local authority, and the planning department has to presume that it is sustainable? You're right, the presumption in favour of development means that it's considered absolutely fine unless proven otherwise. It's a bit like every building is innocent until proven guilty to a certain extent. And that does that does 
place the burden on the local authorities to make the case for something being inappropriate. It's, it's quite a task, it's quite an undertaking to, to make the case rather that, than the designer or the developer making the case for the fact that it is appropriate. And that becomes more and more developer-friendly if you get to a situation in a local plan where they haven't fulfilled their quarter of housing yes. within their five-year plan. Is that, is that right? Yes, yeah. That, that's a very interesting point. After I hadn't, I hadn't necessarily thought of that, but to, towards the end, particularly with the new measures in the MPPF, if housing delivery hasn't happened... Um, it could start you can to shovel, you can yeah. anything through. <laughs> exactly. But, I mean, I think that's a very good explanation. But Friends of the Earth describe the presumption in favour of sustainable development as quotes: if a developer puts in a planning application, for example, for a housing development or supermarket, the local authority will have to approve unless there are very strong reasons not to. Is that is that a bit is that bending the stick or is that correct? Um, it's correct to a certain extent. You know, it depends. Obviously, there will be local plans that identify where's appropriate for housing development yeah. and where's appropriate for a supermarket. Yeah. So if you tried to take strategic industrial land and put in a housing development, you know, the, that just wouldn't fly because those local plans are in place. Yeah, I think as we discussed, the, the sort of proof is on the part of the local authority to identify the, the reasons why something isn't appropriate, which is, sorry to mention it again, but more resource intensive <laughs> at a point at which... There are fewer staff in order, you know, in a position to do that. Yeah, yeah. No, because there is the bizarre thing about planning departments is they have this time limit, the idea that you have to give a decision in six weeks, yes. eight weeks, or whatever it might be. Yeah. And then, but of course, the decision is we need more time. I can, I can absolutely see the frustration on developers' part in that, you know, and, and planning performance agreements have come out partly for for that reason, yeah, yeah. in that there are. Sometimes the local planning policy process is so slow that the master plans and schemes for sites is is very much ahead of that and they're just stalled and waiting. And, you know, in terms of the viability of schemes, that has an impact and it's... Yeah, because it was not necessarily seen to be resources or, or in order to undermine the, the demand for resources, it, it was seen to be too bureaucratic. It wasn't that there was yeah. enough resources, it was too much paperwork. So, therefore, this idea that the planning department... Yeah, speeds it up. Have, yeah, yeah. yeah. If you now have to prove that it's not a sustainable development, then and you don't have the resources. Yes, yeah. Then you might have to put things through on the nod. Yes. Okay. So it's good for getting stuff built, I suppose. It is. Uh, it is. <laughs> so, so we have that national planning policy framework as the overarching kind of criteria, and then we come down the chain to strategic plans to to uh, development, uh, strategic plans, neighbourhood plans, local plans, and all the rest of it. So, in fact, I was going to ask you about the strategic plans one because obviously. We used to have regional spatial strategies yeah. and, and that sort of regional level of planning which sort of disappeared um, about the same time as the MPPF coming in. Yeah. Um, so, so there are fewer strategic plans than there used to be. There's yeah. the London plan, which yeah. I understand yeah. a strategic plan, yeah. and then you know perhaps national infrastructure plan and strategy yeah. and yeah. others that yeah. relate to that. But I just wanted to check I would answer. No, that's, that's the question. answer. I mean, there, there are fewer of them, but there yeah. are still grand metropolitan plans yes, in, yeah. in, in place and there's probably more metropolitan regions than there are that's were. true that's true uh, that's, that's all it was so that's, yes. okay, we can we can pass over that I, I suppose you know the London plan is a huge undertaking and each time it's refreshed it sort of takes six years or so but I do think it's an incredibly good thing for London and again in this latest iteration there's a far greater focus on design and design in its broadest sense and good growth they're working 
both with the GLA and boroughs, I know that there's that sense of boroughs understanding the local detail and the difficulties with some of the policies in the draft London plan. But actually, there's a fair amount of engagement, and that's I think that's been fairly successfully worked through, if you like, and there have been changes yeah. at this intent-to-publish stage that reflect the borough's concerns, um, such as housing delivery targets. And yeah, that yeah. So in terms of neighbourhood plans, it relies on local people bringing it forward, and so having the skills, the time in the local community and the knowledge, and also ensuring that it's not led by just a few people, that it is an objective assessment of what's best for that area. I mean, it does have the vote. The neighbourhood plans do have the vote at the end of the process. So that is a very democratic way of identifying whether people support the plan or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can we just go quickly back to development plans, just in terms of the basic technicalities about what it is and the timescales and the zoning and all the rest of it? How how does that come about? Yes. And and what what are the timeframes? Yeah, I mean, local development plans are also... um, you know, similar to the to the London plan, they're a very long process, and there there is certainly the case where um, you know there were core strategies before the the current local plan guidance, and some local authorities you know were halfway through preparing their core strategy when it shifted, yeah. and you sort of have to take stock and and, mm. and go back and, and start again, and so local development plans have a huge number of evidence studies um, surrounding them, sort of economic development studies schlars and schmars about um, housing site delivery and what's appropriate and a fair amount of engagement as well with some of those along the way and they do go through a very robust process in terms of then going through an examination in public you know time doesn't stop while those plans are being delivered that's so you know we're working with some local authorities who have a very large number of homes um, to deliver and Mm -hmm. set out and so they're trying to advance those plans at the same time as progressing their local plan and going through their examination in public process and it's it's quite a difficult juggling task I think for the local authorities because it's it is a huge undertaking I think it's yeah I would say it's at least six years in the making putting together a local development plan and then once it's published you probably then need to start thinking about refreshing it again yeah um, which will then be adopted in 10 years time in terms of the MPPF you then have your um, housing supply and you have to identify that you are meeting the le- the delivery of homes that you said you would meet in your local development plan. And, it, and if you're not, then, then that's problematic. So I think, as we mentioned earlier, yeah. you can end up having your local plan not apply to, to planning decisions and it resort back to the MPPF. And if local authorities have very large sites coming forward that will deliver you know, 6,000 homes, but again, that's a long process, the design and development process, and they don't happen to come within that five-year period. It can cause issues, even though actually a huge amount of progress has been made to delivering those new homes. Yeah. There, are many, there are many local authorities that don't have their local development plans developed yeah. sufficiently to meet the requirements of the MPPF. Yes, there are, there are. I don't know the percentage at the moment. You're not going to name names. Okay, okay, okay that's good. But, it's, but yeah, but that must be... A bit dodgy. It is, yeah, it is. It, I think it makes it difficult for for planning decisions. Yeah. I think in in terms of the large housing delivery, I think there is there is a certain amount of sort of flex granularity in the central government. If you if you can demonstrate that you're about to deliver five thousand homes, but right. the the phasing and the development times don't necessarily fit, then there is a little bit of leeway given. Okay. Okay. Granularity. We'll, we'll <laughs> take that. 
on the chain. And your website talks about various methods of community engagement. You talk about, quotes, a wide range of consultation techniques, including pop-up shops, exhibitions, market stalls, and surveys. So is that, you get involved in this? I mean, tell us, tell us yes. what that means and what the benefits are. And yeah, yeah. That. So at the, at the start of a, a, a project, so there is, there's a huge range of, of types of events and, and engagement that we do. And at the start of the project, we will sit down and discuss with our client team, usually a local authority, what the best options will be, what the objectives are, what information is most useful and what sort of engagement will, will be most valuable. Because part of it might be identifying a community panel who will then go with the project in future and, and see it through to delivery, yeah. um, if you like. So it, it depends on the project. I think I mentioned we try to speak with as broad a range of people as possible. And so that range of events is partly helping to address that. So there are certainly some people who would very much like to take part in a stakeholder workshop and have a really detailed discussion or thematic discussion about movement issues in the local area, landscape issues, um, new homes, the requirements for those and the type of homes. And then we like to... Um, in order to sort of speak to the wider community for people who don't have time to give up we like to very much piggyback on existing events that are happening so if there's a local festival or a market um, or even in one location it was like the chip van the fish and chip van goes there every Friday evening so if you set up next to them at that time you'll definitely get some people <coughs> that's my kind of meeting <laughs> yeah exactly and some dinner because we, ju- we just want sort of footfall we don't want people who who left the house thinking I will go and comment on a place making or planning exercise today we want people who you know live in that local neighbourhood and have an interest in it what do you think about focus groups do you think they're a bit less free and frank and fair um, I think they have a place so we've, we've done them in the past and we've, we've worked with Ipsos Mori and had very detailed discussions with a group you know eight or twelve people it, it depends the level of detail you want they do provide richer detail I suppose and an opportunity to explore a topic in greater depth and actually the conversational nature of it enables you to extract sometimes some real sort of nuggets and truths right. just from comments that have been made. And it's the discussing around the topic that actually can bring some really kind of rewarding suggestions rather than I'm answering this specific question now, which might happen on a survey. So if we have an online survey that are, because there are GDPR issues as well now, so you can't take hold of lots of people's email addresses if our contact can send that out to a thousand people and then they can fill that in online that again gives um, a much fuller picture and comprehensive view so it's however we adjust it depending on the project and and whether we want broader or sort of deeper and enrichment right Right. a lot of number crunching yeah there is a lot of number crunching and then a lot of like graphic manipulation of the results because they could look quite impenetrable because it all sits in an Excel spreadsheet at one point or a very long Word document but in order for them to be absorbable because we do then go back to the communities and say this is what you've said and this is how it's going to inform the design lots of very colourful pie charts and and infographics and lots of outside 9 to 5 working hours it would seem yeah a fair amount a fair amount we we spread that between the team quite evenly um, so no one takes it too much (laughs) exactly yeah Farmers markets are popular, but I think there's a lot of weekend and evenings. Yeah, but you have to be a particular type. 
person, haven't you? I mean, not just gregarious, but actually friendly. You know, yeah, it's true. But You've got to like talking to people. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't yeah. normally describe an architect, does it? <laughs> not all yeah. architects. We, so we have some colleagues who were, re- who were really that's, good That's at true. I'm not having to ask <laughs> on Alice and Morrison. I've not had any really tricky encounters over the, over the years. I think we've been in some communities where... Um, if development has been delivered in the past and it's been of poor quality, then there's a general suspicion of new development. And and that makes the task harder because you're sort of starting yeah. not from scratch, you're starting sort of, you know, at a, at a disadvantage and you have to show examples of, of how it can be done positively right from the outset and then understand the context and the broader design of how it can work. I suppose the trickiest example, you go to some places where uh, people have a really clear idea of what they want, but it's an incredibly expensive infrastructure project that wouldn't necessarily be possible. So, you know, there, there are sometimes proposals for sort of monorails or underground travelators or build a new canal or, some, or something yeah, like that. Yeah. And it's... I think that's the balance between the local, the local knowledge and input, and then the the professional input in terms of understanding the costs and the delivery. Um, um, so it is part of your role to kind of calm the demands as well as give expression to them. It is, yeah. It's not to dismiss them, to explore them. You know, we 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 no, didn't you know, dismiss you know, that. You know, from day one, the canal's not going to happen. <laughs> but we did. I suppose what we ended what we ended up doing in that situation was. Uh, set a spatial framework and a policy that didn't preclude it from happening in the future spatially didn't focus on it in a way that would undermine other projects that could happen and I think that was the that was the acceptable way forward and the community was happy and the local authority was happy so there is a certain amount to be honest of of balancing the priorities and finding the way through so how do you how do you do that then I mean what's what's the community engagement process. I understand the initial conversations and questionnaires and what yeah, we like, yeah. and then there's the presentation of the results. But in between that, are yes. you involved in community participatory design, co-design activities, you know, plast- yes. plasticine and yeah, yeah. sticky back plastic, and do all that? Yeah, we do, we do. Yeah. And that's, that's you know, some of the most fun, fun elements. It's the ongoing conversation, I think, where we say, yes, we explored that, but that's going to be difficult for these reasons. I, um, I think there are pros and cons to the engagement team being separate from or the same as the design team. Mm. And so I think if you are doing the engagement and also the design, you are, you're very close to it. You can understand exactly how people's comments then might affect the design. But you may well be a little bit, um, I don't think precious is the word, but you're quite close to the design you're not as uh, neutral and distant in terms of feeding those comments in. So if you're separate from the design team, you're absolutely neutral in that position and you are um, bringing in all the comments. But in terms, you need a very good sort of integration then between the engagement team and the design team to understand how those comments will affect the design. And I think... On, on balance, I think integration is probably the best, providing you can not be too wedded to your ideas at the point at which people comment on them. Yeah, because there's a potential for Chinese whispers and misinterpretation the further there, away it goes. Yes, there. yeah, there is. There is. And then in terms of, uh, speaking of resources earlier on, I mean, this is, yeah. this is quite an intensive process you're describing of quite a fair few people sitting out in the streets, chatting to people, liaising. What, what's the selling point? 
I, th- I think increasingly with local authorities there's less of a need to sell it because they've been through experiences where they've developed projects that perhaps didn't have engagement and then with social media and, and everything that you know it's very vocal if the local community don't like it so it's absolutely worth and they can see it's worth having those discussions early on. That's um, selling it like an anti-litigation strategy. <laughs> oh no, which isn't the most positive. I, I, I think in this country, we're, we have a fairly well-developed participatory design, engagement and consultation process now. There's an element of semantics to that, because there's a overlap and yeah. people think each is sort of more valuable. But I, I think there is a recognition of the value of it and doing it early because I think it's a bit it's a bit like the sustainability graph the more you invest in testing of you know sustainability methods earlier in the design of a master plan or a building the less expensive it is and the more greater impact it's likely to have to sort of retrofit things becomes very expensive with a a much smaller impact and I think it's a similar graph for for consultation in that early in the process you can know you're going in the right direction and therefore it's it, it's far smoother further down the line and everyone is much more happy with it. Whereas if you get to a certain point and then test, it, there are sort of showstoppers and there's outrage that there hasn't been engagement earlier in the process. And it's, right. you know, so in terms of evidence-based studies for the local plan, we do engagement on those. Characterisation studies, which are, you know, very much early in the process, but then the council are looking at how it delivers. What is a characterisation study? So it's... It's looking at sort of the natural characteristics, so the topography, the geology, what, dis- what explains how a particular area has evolved and shaped, where the sort of medieval villages arrived right. and, yeah, and yeah. where the metro line train sort of were taken out and then suburban development has come about. And then looking at the types of housing that are there now, looking at lots of the socioeconomic data, so in terms of demographics and age range, diversity, where there's uh, overcrowding, uh, where there's population density and comparing that with housing density, FAR and DPH, like looking at actual, you know, how many people are living there. Um, and then just looking at key characteristics of a borough and then identifying how new housing development can come forward in the most appropriate way. So it's uh, perhaps identifying small sites and then looking at the site types and examples from elsewhere and what would be appropriate in terms of the use mix, scale and massing, the parking provision and landscaping. It informs design guidance, but it means that that design guidance for new homes is based in a really thorough understanding of the local authority. So where you have projects in house that don't involve urban practitioners and it's mm. an architectural project, Yes. presumably architects, because architects have been taught that they ought to be doing that anyway, yes. haven't they? It's like, it's like um, wayfinders. The very essence of architecture is how to find your way around a building, but it's become yes. a separate consultancy role. So architects here would do slightly less yes. mega in-depth version of what yeah. you do. So, yeah, I think we are a very contextually led practice, so all the architects do do that as well. And even it's, if it's a building, there will be a master plan um, surrounding that building that's been developed in the background and, and been discussed in order to inform how it's designed. But this is, we do it, I think, on a broader scale, you know, borough-wide or, or yeah. town-wide, and then also in greater depth. So the documents can get quite chunky. All right, great, great. Well, we've kind of talked about everything. So my last question was, have I missed anything? Or is there any, like, final go-to comment you want to... No, I think... I sell this on. I notice in the media... If a building is beautiful or a scheme is beautiful 
um, the architect is celebrated. Uh, if a terrible scheme or building is built, it's usually which local authority planner let that through. They did a terrible job. <laughs> And so I'm not a planner, actually, you know, I've not really studied planning, it's all been sort of socio-economic stuff and urban design stuff, but I've I've just noticed this slight imbalance in that I think they get a bit of a hard time. Very good. Standing up for (laughs) local authorities can't be bad. Right, look, so, very good. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Louise of Alison Morrison, Urban Practitioners. Look at www.alliesandmorrison.com forward slash urban hyphen practitioners but you can just get on the main website anyway if you can't be bothered to type all that out but check out their projects ranging from a 15-year plan for shoreditch to reinvigorating lechworth garden city that's all for now please visit the website or search professional practice podcasts on soundcloud and itunes and listen to experts on a wide range of topics and email me austin.williams at kingston.ac.uk if you have any comments or ideas that you'd like to put forward Thank you very much. All the best. Till the next time. Goodbye.